0: Section 12 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Moat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 7, The Second Protectorate of York and the Second Reconciliation of St. Paul's, Part 2. It must not be assumed that there was an entire absence of local disorder during this period of two years, but it was less acute than formerly. Nevertheless, there are a few striking instances. Although King Henry, by his presence, did much to bring quiet to the districts which he visited, yet even the purlieus of the court were not free from violence. The liverymen of the magnates could not help coming into collision with the civic authorities, for the noble profession of arms becomes debased when it serves only private ends, or is not guided by an honest and powerful government. Ten years' weak rule in England was alluring the soldiery to assume something of the character which we see in the condottieri of the Italian republics or the mercenaries of the Thirty Years' War. And yet, the condition of England never became really bad, for the growing middle class in town and country were an obstacle to disorder, while the leaders among the nobility showed a praiseworthy desire to avoid the plunder of the peaceful people. The difficulty was that there were too many masters. Sovereignty was divided between the king, the magnates, and the chartered municipalities. When the king with the court was at Coventry in October 1456, an affray arose between the men of the Duke of Somerset and the watchmen of the city. It is difficult to see how the affray could have arisen at all, except through the duke's men wantonly infringing the quiet of the streets. Some of the men of the town, two or three, say the Paston letters, were killed. The alarm bell, the tocsin of the citizens, was rung. The town arose, and we can imagine the citizens pouring out of their houses, each hastily tying the strings of his quilted tunic, burning now for a hard blow at the courtiers, at whose supercilious manners the good townsmen had been chafing. Matters would have gone hard with the men of Somerset had not the Duke of Buckingham whose influence was regularly exercised on the side of peace and moderation, come up and manage to allay the strife. In the west of England, it was seldom that absolute quiet prevailed. Although the Duke of York was strong on the Welsh march around Ludlow, yet further south in the Severn Valley the cause of King Henry had a good following. Jasper Tudor, son of Queen Catherine's second marriage, and therefore half-brother to Henry VI, was Earl of Pembroke. His family had strong local influence, as Henry Seventh found thirty years later when he landed at Milford Haven. But at this time there was a small war going on between the Earl of Richmond, Edmund Tudor, brother of the Earl of Pembroke, and a Welsh chieftain whose name was reported as Griffith Suo. This tumult was more than a mere local trouble, It seems to have involved the causes of Lancaster and York for nearly a year later. May 1st, 1457, fighting was still going on. The head of the rebellion being now Sir William Herbert, a determined Yorkist, who subsequently gained for himself the earldom of Pembroke after Jasper Tudor had been attainted. But the presence of the king and queen at Hereford seems to have had a salutary effect, and to have brought about a pacification with the rebellious herbert yet it was not merely in the outlying parts of the country that the din of arms was still heard the commons of kent as they were wont are not well disposed for there is in doing among them whatever it be something was evidently threatened in kent where the king's party was unpopular but for the time it came to nothing in London, however, a real fight arose. The cause was not political but economic. The Lombards or Italian merchants, from the great commercial republics of Venice and Florence, did much business in the city, as may be judged from the present name of Lombard Street, with its long tradition of banking and of stable business enterprise. But in the 15th century, the chief business of the Italian merchants in London lay probably in wool, of which commodity they acted as brokers on a large scale for the needs of the countries round the Mediterranean. Their cities, especially Venice, still held the gorgeous east in fee, for although the Turk had now captured Constantinople, 1453, the alternative route from the east round the Cape of Good Hope had not yet been discovered. The wines of the Mediterranean country, still more the silks and spices of Asia, were carried by the Italian cities. Western Europe stood permanently in their debt. Accordingly, the commercial resources of the Italian merchants were enormous, their influence correspondingly great. But in the Middle Ages, foreigners were never popular in England. First the prosperous Jews, then the opulent Italian merchants, were regarded with bitter jealousy by the merchants at home. For although their interests were ultimately the same, although the commanding position of the city, its riches, and its long history of honorable economic life would have been impossible without these foreigners, their enterprise, their capital, their connections, yet this truth was not always within the narrower purview of individual interests. And between individuals, just causes of friction are always arising, and affect what would otherwise be the common interests of two interdependent classes. So in the years of peace between the First Battle of St. Albans and the renewal of the war at Heath, there was serious friction, a great hurling, an English chronicler calls it, between the Mercers of London, who dealt in cloth, and the resident Lombards, who dealt in cloth and wool. The forces which should have kept order, the mayor and the aldermen, were on the side of the mercers. So the Lombards were badly treated, some of them being seized and put in prison, while others, for their safety, left London and settled in Southampton and Winchester, where, in their opulent way, they leased old mansions, causing the landlords to spend much in repairs but Henry summoned the chief mercer William Cantilow to appear before him and the council at Coventry. Cantilow was forthwith arrested at the king's command and imprisoned by Lord Dudley in Dudley Castle, so it would seem that in the judgment of the council, which was not likely to favor them, justice was on the side of the Lombards. Therefore those who had prepared to migrate from London to Winchester found it unnecessary to do so, and the leases which they had taken of the old mansions were cancelled. Accordingly, the landlords, who had made great repairs in their mansions for the newcomers, were left to face a loss. When the court moved up to London, a collision which would have renewed the Wars of the Roses at once was with difficulty averted. A great council was summoned for November 1457. The Duke of York and the Earl of Salisbury came and abode in London. The Lancastrian chiefs were also to the fore. The Duke of Somerset, the Earl of Northumberland with his son, Lord Egremont, taking up lodgings between Temple Bar and Westminster. Their retainers filled all the houses around St. Giles' Church. They were, it was believed, deliberately massing themselves for an attack on the Duke of York and his party. The Earl of Warwick hastened over from Calais to help the Duke and his father but the Londoners had no desire that a sanguinary battle should be fought in the heart of their city. So the mayor, Geoffrey Boleyn, collected a strong force from the citizens and showed so firm a determination to prevent any breach of the peace that no rising took place. It is significant that when civil war did break out again in September 1459, it was in the turbulent and remote Welsh march where an orderly municipal life like that of the Londoners was almost unknown, the period between the first outbreak of civil war at St Albans in fourteen fifty five, and the second great outbreak at Blore Heath in fourteen fifty nine, was indeed one of comparative peace and order, one of the best periods of Henry the Sixth reign, and yet, as has been indicated, the control exercised by the government was weak and breaches of the king's peace were by no means unknown. Nor were the frontiers of the kingdom kept inviolate. in spite of the activity shown by the Earl of Warwick as captain of Calais. The king of England was no longer lord of the narrow seas. A not unnatural reaction from the English invasions of France in the Hundred Years' War is seen in French raids on the coast of Kent. An obnoxious feature of the period is the attitude of Queen Margaret, who was secretly in communication with the French invaders. A great raid was made upon sandwich on August 28, 1457. The leaders were Pierre de Brasse or de Brézé, Seigneur de Warren and Seneschal of Normandy, and Robert de Floquet, Bailly of Evreux. They were said to have come at the invitation of Queen Margaret. These two, with some other Norman lords, left Arfleur on the 25th with 4,000 men and good supply of artillery. They cruised along the coasts of Sussex and Kent, but found no favorable place for landing till they came to a spot six miles from Sandwich. On Sunday, August 28th, at six o'clock in the morning, the Seneschal landed with 800 men, and marshalling them in three companies, he set out on foot the ships, as much as possible, keeping in touch with him from the sea. The only difficulty which the French at first found in their march was the badness of the road. The English government, by its apathy or feebleness, seemed to have done everything else that was necessary to make their journey easy. But shortly afterward, they found some real opposition when the way was barred by a ditch filled with water and a bulwark made from the earth thrown up out of the ditch. After a sharp fight the bulwark was taken, the defenders made off to sandwich, and the French continued their march without troubling to take the precaution which they had hitherto observed of keeping a guard in advance and in the rear. Arriving at sandwich they were harassed by the firing of guns from a great carrick and three ships of war which the townsmen had manned in the harbor but on the Seneschal of Normandy sending word to them that he would burn their ships unless they stopped firing, they did so, and remained quietly on the ships and ceased to annoy the Frenchmen. The Seneschal then issued strict orders among his men that the property of churches should be respected, that no woman should be molested, that nothing should be set on fire, and that no one should be killed in cold blood. These orders are said to have been honorably carried out. The French then entered the town, and their ships made their way into the harbor. This part of their work was easy, but once inside the town they had several hours of hard fighting, the townspeople strenuously contesting every street and being driven from one, only to offer an equally valiant resistance in another. The narrow, winding streets, with the high, close-packed houses of a medieval town, offered splendid opportunities for this sort of defense, compared with the great squares and broad straight streets of modern towns, which are constructed in this way partly to make any sort of irregular warfare on the part of the citizens impossible. By five o'clock, the French were becoming exhausted. Many of their men were wounded, although none, it appears, slain. The men of Sandwich had many wounded, too, and a few slain reinforcements were continually dropping in from the country around, and no doubt many more would have come had people seriously believed that the French had landed in England. When informed of the invasion, people said they would believe it when they saw it. Accordingly, they came and were convinced when they found themselves skirmishing against the enemy. About five o'clock, the French leaders, considering that the fighting had not slackened at all, and that their men were not in the best condition, owing to the discomfort caused by the crossing by bad seas, gave the order to retire. So they retreated to their ships without serious loss, except for nine men, who with three others were holding a wicket upon a bridge against the English when the planks gave way, and the nine men were plunged into the water and drowned. Some others had got intoxicated with the good wine they found, but they were got away to the ships without mishap. So on Sunday evening, the French sailed back to the point at which they had originally landed and near where their reserves were lying at sea. There they remained all Monday much annoyed by a cannon which the English kept continually firing off at them from the shore, but no one molested them from the sea. On Tuesday, they sailed back to Arfleur, taking with them the three great ships of war which they had captured in Sandwich Harbour. When they reached Arfleur, the prisoners, whose possible ransoms were a marketable commodity, were put up to auction, and all the booty taken was divided among the leaders and men, each one receiving his proper share. The expedition had been well managed, and had come at a time when the coast of England, except for the courage of the local inhabitants, was quite undefended. Such raids, though not unknown previously in English history, only came when the government was very weak as in the earlier years of Richard II and Henry IV. Next year, 1458, the Earl of Warwick, who was already captain of Calais, was appointed admiral in place of the Duke of Exeter, who was compensated for his loss with 1,000 pounds out of the hanover and Chancery the change was entirely for the better. The vigour of the new admiral soon made itself felt. Calais all this time was continually threatened with a siege from the French, or more often from the Duke of Burgundy, who regarded Calais as being his by rights. The victualling of the town was badly administered, but Warwick had done much to remedy this defect by appealing for supplies to the patriotism of the men of Canterbury and Sandwich. A successful sally was made into the Boulognois with eight hundred men, and some valuable cargoes of Gascon wine were captured in ships. In the same year, on May 28, 1458, the Earl set out from Calais harbour with a squadron of twelve ships five large ships of forecastle, three carvels, and four pinnaces to meet twenty eight sail of the Spaniards who were reported to be not far off. The Spanish fleet included 16 great ships of forecastle against Warwick's five. At four o'clock in the afternoon of the 29th, he met the enemy and at once engaged them in one of the hardest, although not one of the longest, of England's sea fights. John Jerningham, one of Warwick's officers, at the very beginning boarded a Spanish ship of 300 tons and took it with 23 men but in turn he himself was captured and remained a prisoner for six hours. In the end, after a battle the like of which had not been seen for forty winters, the Spaniards were defeated with a loss of six ships captured, 240 men killed, and 500 wounded. The English lost 80 men and 200 wounded. This battle did much to regain for England control of the narrow seas, and especially it gave the Earl of Warwick that commanding position at Calais and on the sea which had so momentous a result for the Yorkist cause in the next few years. A short while after this battle against the Spaniards, he set upon a fleet of merchantmen from Lübeck, which refused to lower its colors to the English flag. He captured seventeen large and several smaller vessels laden with salt. War with Scotland was only avoided owing to the instability of English policy. A significant feature about the government at this time is that it seems to have had no definite representative for foreign affairs. The brief Second Protectorate of the Duke of York came to an end on February 25, 1456, and yet, just five months after this, he is found sending a dispatch, almost an ultimatum, in the name of the royal government To the Scottish king, who had renounced the truce made in 1453. Evidently, the Duke, although holding no special office, was still an official mouthpiece of the government. The message which he sent was very sharp and vigorous, and made it clear that the peace of the English frontier was not likely to be broken. This dispatch was followed next month, in August, by another from the Duke to James II. In this, Richard pointed out that the Scots king, having disregarded the last message and having invaded the north of England, would now have to face a regular war at the hands of the Duke of York, acting for Henry VI. This was the proper way to act, never to threaten without following up the threats if disregarded with deeds. But just at this critical point, the policy of the government suddenly changed and another dispatch was hastily sent to the Scottish king, cancelling the last, and declaring that the announcement of war had been sent without the king's authority. Whether this was true or not, it is equally discreditable to the organization of the government, and eloquent of the way in which foreign affairs were mismanaged at this time. End of section 12.